If you have a copy of the scriptures, uh, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to look this morning at verses 22 to 37. This will be our last sermon in Matthew uh, for 2021. Uh, We're going to step out of this series uh, during the season of Advent, and we're going to look at the theme of longing. Uh, I mentioned this in the church-wide email. You can see the full schedule, but we're going to look at some different passages uh, in the Old and New Testament that have to do with the longing that we have for Christ to return and make all things new. So that'll be our focus over the next uh, several weeks. But for this morning, Matthew 12 is what's before us. So this is verses 22 to 37, and this is God's word for us, his people, this morning. Listen to this. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house." Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. These are sobering words from Christ for us this morning, but they are true, and they are God's word for his people today. Friends, this is a complex passage. You may have gathered that as we read. You've got all kinds of things happening in this passage that have led to much speculation, that have led to superstitions, that have led to misinformation. You have demonic oppression. You have the idea that Satan is being bound. You have the idea of the unforgivable sin. And truth be told, there's even more than that going on here. 
So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look briefly this morning at the action, and then we're going to look at Jesus's response to the Pharisees. That's basically the two things happening here in the passage. The action is relatively straightforward. In verse 22, a demon-oppressed man came to, was brought to Jesus. He couldn't speak uh, or see, uh, and Jesus heals the man. It doesn't tell us how, it just says Jesus healed him and the man was able to speak and to see again. And verse 23 tells us that the people were amazed when they saw this. And they said aloud to themselves, could this be the son of David? Which is just simply the shorthand way of saying, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the guy we've been waiting on all this time who's going to make all the bad stuff come untrue? Well, the Pharisees over here the other people marveling and thinking this could be the Christ, that Jesus might be the Messiah. And they say instead, no, no, no. It's not by the Spirit of God he's doing these things. It's only by Beelzebul, which is an ancient word for Satan. It's only by Satan that Jesus is casting out demons. I want to be really clear about what they're saying, and we're going to come back to this idea here in a minute. The Pharisees hear the crowd saying, is this the son of David? They recognize that Jesus has just cast out a demon. They're not arguing that point. They notice that Jesus has done this. And the third thing they do is choose to attribute that work to Satan. Those three things are important. We'll come back to them in a little bit. Verse 25 tells us that Jesus knows their thoughts, though. He doesn't overhear what they're saying. He knows their thoughts. And so the rest of the passage is a response to the Pharisees. Everything from verse 25 to 37 is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. And there's three things that Jesus does in that response. The first thing is Jesus clarifies his mission. The second thing, Jesus warns of danger. And the third thing is Jesus demonstrates our need. Jesus clarifies his mission, he warns of danger, and he demonstrates our need. So Jesus clarifies his mission. What do I mean by that? Well, in verse 25, Jesus begins his response to the Pharisees. And he says, what you're saying makes no sense. It's illogical. A divided kingdom can't stand. If Satan is diminishing his own influence in the world, his kingdom's not going to go Anywhere. It doesn't make any sense why Satan would cast out a demon. And then he pushes a little further in verse 27. He says, And if I'm doing it, if I'm doing this successfully by Satan, how is it that your sons are casting out demons? That should maybe raise a little question mark for us. In the ancient world, it was not unknown that there were exorcists. So people would be afflicted by demons. And there were Jewish exorcists that would come and try to cast out the demons. Uh, In fact, we see some of these people in the Bible. Uh, In Acts chapter 19, verses 11 to 16, I'm going to read this. You can flip there if you want. Uh, But just so you see, this is something that was happening in the ancient world, in ancient Israel. Uh, This is what Acts 19, 11 to 16 says. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. 
so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying to the evil spirits, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Skeva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So these Jewish exorcists thought um, that Jesus would be good for business. The name of Jesus might be good for their business, but they did not know Jesus, and therefore it was not. And so what Jesus is doing when he says, if, you're, like, if I'm doing this successfully by Satan, how is it that the Jewish exorcists are unsuccessfully casting out demons? Are they doing it unsuccessfully in the power of God? And the success is only coming through Satan? Again, your point is illogical, Pharisees. Verse 28, Jesus says, But if I'm doing this by the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If this is actually a work of the Spirit, then all of the hopes of these people who are saying, could this be the Son of David, are actually being realized. The kingdom is here. Verse 29, Jesus says, How can you plunder the strong man's house unless you first bind him? Don't miss what Jesus is saying here. Because this is good news and it is huge news. Jesus is saying, I am binding, I have bound Satan, and now I am plundering his house. Jesus is saying, I have overcome Satan, and now I am going into his house and taking what is mine. Jesus did that in the temptations, which we've talked about before. Jesus is doing that here. Ultimately, Jesus will bind and defeat Satan fully, at the cross. And what that means for us, because there is so much misunderstanding about who Satan is and how demons operate, what that means is Satan is not sovereign over anything. Satan is not sovereign on earth. Satan has power where sin enslaves. So how should we think about Satan then? If we say he's not sovereign on earth, how should we think about him and his influence? Uh, C.S. Lewis, I think, has a helpful thought in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which is awesome, and you should all read this afternoon. Uh, He says this. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So Lewis's point is two mistakes we can make is to think too little about the demonic forces or too much. And either one is unhealthy. 
Luther, uh, Martin Luther, uh, I think has my favorite quote about Satan when he says this, even the devil is God's devil. Even the devil is God's devil. Satan is opposed to God, but Satan can only do what God permits. Satan does not operate outside of the sovereignty of God over everything. God is sovereign over Satan. Satan is absolutely the greatest enemy of the church and of Christians, and Satan absolutely attacks Christians and the church, but he can only attack insofar as God allows him to do it. And his attacks will not ultimately succeed. At every point in the Bible, Satan attacks the people of God, and God overcomes Satan without hardly any effort at all. Satan is flailing against God, but he's been bound. His attacks are curtailed. So Jesus clarifies his mission by saying, I have bound Satan. That is what is happening here. I am kicking demons out of people because Satan has been bound. Second thing Jesus does in responding to the Pharisees is he warns them of danger. Uh, Verse 30, uh, Jesus says, uh, if you're not with me, you're against me. Which basically means no one is neutral. There is no one who is just kind of okay with respect to Jesus. You're either for Jesus or you're against him. And then in verses 31 and 32, Jesus describes a sin that won't be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And friends, this is so incredibly misunderstood. I just want to take a minute to talk about it. Because when I was a kid, I was terrified that I was accidentally going to do this. That like as an eight-year-old, I was accidentally going to do this, and that was it for me for eternity. I imagine if you've grown up in the church or have thought of this passage before, perhaps you too have been concerned that you have committed or might accidentally commit the unforgivable sin. So let me allay your anxiety. The unforgivable sin is not a sin that is accidentally committed. In fact, if you were to push me, I would probably tell you that I think the ability to commit the unforgivable sin was limited to the time of Christ's earthly ministry. But to really get at the heart of what the unforgivable sin is, think back to the Pharisees. Think back to the thing where I counted off three things and said, we're coming back to it later. The Pharisees recognized what Jesus was doing. They recognized he was casting out demons. And they chose to attribute that work to Satan. And they did that to ruin Jesus in the eyes of others. That is the heart of the unforgivable sin. They recognized the work of Jesus, they attributed it to Satan, and they did that in order to ruin Jesus in the eyes of others. And so there's sort of a deep-seated irony here that Jesus is getting at as he's talking to the Pharisees, because one thing we know about the Pharisees is they were the self-appointed blasphemy police in ancient Israel. And Jesus is saying, you guys better be careful. Because you are really, really close to committing a true kind of blasphemy 
that can't and won't be forgiven. But again, it's helpful even there to note, Jesus warns them of this sin. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't say that you've done this and now you are done. Jesus warns them about this sin and then he moves on. And sometimes it's helpful to take our cues from Jesus. So when Jesus says something quickly and then moves on, it's probably best that we not spend too much time speculating about this kind of sin. He warns them and moves on. And that takes us to the third thing Jesus does. And the third thing is Jesus demonstrates our need. He has clarified his mission. He has warned of danger. And now in his response to the Pharisees, he is clarifying our need. Look at verse 33. Jesus says to the Pharisees, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. He's saying, Pharisees, you guys are fake. That's the point. You're fake. You have the appearance of good fruit, but the tree is rotten. So either make the fruit bad and just have your hearts fully reflected in the way you act, or actually change your hearts, because you guys are faking it. You're doing what one author has called fruit stapling. Uh, Fruit, we know, is not stapled to trees, right? Fruit grows from trees when trees are healthy and have the proper nutrients and water. Fruit stapling is where you pick up a behavior and you say, I'm going to be patient. And you staple it to the tree. And guess what? You're not actually patient. You've decided that's the one behavior you're going to try to modify for the next three weeks. Then you're going to move on to gentleness or whatever it's going to be. And friends, this is such a dangerous temptation in our lives. We all try to do this. We all think easier than actually becoming the kind of person who's patient or becoming the kind of person who's gentle. I'm just going to white knuckle it and fake it till I make it and staple patience to the outside of a tree that's not actually living. That's what the Pharisees have done in their entire spiritual existence. And so what what Jesus is getting at in this last section of his response to the Pharisees is he is telling us that godliness, that holiness, that growth in grace, that sanctification, whatever you want to call it, is not ultimately about behavior modification. Growing in grace is not about behavior modification. It is not about learning to act right. It's not about learning to keep up appearances. When we do that, the apparent fruit that is growing is fake. It doesn't actually match what's going on in our hearts. It is not gospel fruit. And so in verses 34 and 35, Jesus pushes in even deeper. And he says to the Pharisees, you don't have a speech problem. In fact, you don't have a knowledge problem. Your problem is you have evil hearts. It's not that you're speaking wrongly. It's not that you are thinking wrongly and you need more content. Your hearts are evil. Now, in those verses, Jesus is talking about words, and he's talking about speech, but that's why it's so important to go back to verse 25. 
In verse 25, it says, knowing their thoughts. Jesus didn't overhear the Pharisees. It doesn't say, and hearing what they were whispering. It says, Jesus knew their thoughts. Which means, the words and the speech that Jesus is talking about here are not merely what is being said aloud. Jesus is considering even our motivations, our inner monologues, and our grumblings inside our minds, inside our hearts. He is warning the Pharisees and he's warning us about those things. Verse 36 and 37, Jesus says, you're going to be held accountable for every careless word. And that's not just the words we speak. That's the words we think. It's the words we feel. It's the words that stay in our head. And Jesus says, you're going to be justified or condemned based on that. Which means you're going to be shown to be righteous or shown to be wicked based on your internal monologue. And friends, I hope that is sobering to you. In fact, I hope it's overwhelming and in some measure, I hope it's terrifying. Because that means we're in trouble. Our inner monologues, our inner grumblings, those are the things that God is going to judge us upon. Friends, if that's true, then we need more than just to be cleaned up on the outside. We don't just need to learn better behavior. If this is true, and it is because Jesus says it, if it's true, then we need to learn to love and to want and to think and to feel correctly. We need something much deeper than an external transformation. We need to be transformed from the inside out. Like our passage in Ezekiel 36, we need a new heart. A lot of times when people look at this passage, uh, they kind of stop at verse 32 because the helpful editors of our English Bibles broke the paragraph there and added a new title. But the reality is 22 to 37 is the entirety of the exchange. And friends, sometimes we come to a passage like this and we get so fixated and we get stuck on these interesting and confusing things. But what if the main point of this passage is not about Jesus' authority over Satan or the unforgivable sin? What if the central thing Jesus wants us this morning to take away from his words is that our hearts are in desperate need of him? We need to think about our hearts. We need to think about how they overflow into our speech and into our thoughts and into our wants and into our grumblings. You see, this story shows us that sin is deeper than our behavior. And because it does that, it shows us how deep our need truly is. We don't just need to be better outwardly. Our hearts are evil. We love our sin. And even the good things we do are done with motivations that are mixed and impure. Our internal monologues, my internal monologue, and I'm assuming yours as well, can be harsh and dismissive and arrogant. One pastor used to counsel people with this kind of news and say, cheer up, 
you're worse than you think you are. So here's a question, and we'll end with this question. If we are justified or condemned by our words and our thoughts and our motivations and our grumblings, then what hope do we have? What hope do we have if we need to be transformed from the inside out? Friends, there's only one person in this passage who speaks only truth and only goodness. There's only one person in this passage who has an unmixed heart, whose motivations are pure, who loves the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength every second of every day. There's only one person in this passage who is not enslaved to or in love with sin. And as this story opens, what does that one person do? He restores the sight and the speech of a man who has been oppressed by evil. He heals a man. He delivers a man from evil. And what I want you to see this morning is that Jesus is always doing that for his people. He is always rescuing us and delivering us from evil. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection, he not only delivers us from evil, he rescues us even from the evil in our own hearts. And now, by his Holy Spirit, he is constantly healing our hearts. He is teaching us to fall out of love with sin and to love him. And friends, that love transforms us. And so we go back to the beginning question that the people asked when they saw what Christ had done. Can this be the son of David? And I think uh, J.R.R. Tolkien in The Return of the King captures it best when he says, the hands of the true king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. Yes, he is the son of David. And it's good news. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that the hands of Christ are the hands of a healer. And we thank you that he has bound the strong man, that you are sovereign over Satan, and that Satan can only do what you permit in this life. But Father, we thank you also that in Christ, you are changing our hearts. You are teaching us to fall out of love with sin and teaching us to fall more and more in love with you. Father, do that work in us. Teach us to turn away from sin and to turn towards you. Make us love you with all of our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strength. Father, even now as we come to your table, we pray that you will be at work in us and with us. That you will take an ordinary bread, an ordinary cup, and use them for an extraordinary purpose. To anchor us in the truth of Christ's work on our behalf. Strengthen us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.